Good morning, Parkview. It is so good to see you. <laughs> uh, my name's Kim, and I'm just so glad that you're here this morning. And at Parkview, we acknowledge that every single week, each and every one of us comes here in a different place. And so, as Dave said, we hope that you were made to feel welcome this morning. This morning, we're actually going to talk about... Um, Miracles. We're going to wrap up the series today that we've been in for eight weeks. We have defined miracles as an astonishing event that occurs when the power of God transcends what is normally perceived as natural law and cannot be explained upon any known or natural basis. It is the girl who is dead being raised to life. It is the blind beggar returning to sight. It is the demon-possessed man being set free. It's three friends who hold firm to their faith and after being thrown into a furnace, emerge unscathed. Miracles remind us that God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe and that he is actively involved in his world and in our lives all the time. Today, I actually want to visit a story, a miracle that Ray discussed a few weeks ago. It's the story of the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, the story is sandwiched in the text of Jairus' story. And in case you missed it, Ray explained to us that Jesus was at the peak of his public ministry when Jairus, a synagogue leader, comes to him and falls at his feet. And he pleads with Jesus. He begs for Jesus to heal his daughter who's dying. And Jesus agrees and as he journeys with Jairus there's a woman in the crowd who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years and she reaches out and she touches Christ and she's healed and Christ stops to interact with her but you see this interruption takes some time and by the time Jesus and Jairus arrive at his home his daughter's passed away And still scripture records that Jesus heals his daughter, raises her from the dead, and then Jesus moves on with his ministry. But today I want to go back and discuss this first woman, the one who had been subject to bleeding. You see, some scholars view her as merely an interruption in the text, that her purpose there is really kind of to create a sense of suspense so we can get to the grander, bigger, more important story, which is Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. But you see, I believe that this woman's story is exceedingly important. And so today I want to share with you some of what I've been learning. And it's my hope that we can dive into this text together. And in doing that, I hope that we can understand more greatly the socio-cultural context of this woman's story, that'll give us some great insight into this miracle as well as into how God's truth may be applied to our lives. So if you will, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter five, verses 24 through 34. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his cloak, then I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt that her body was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. The reality is, Lord, we can't learn anything from your word without your spirit. So we pray that you would use your word through your spirit to do a work in our lives today. Open our eyes and our hearts to something new about you. Put our hearts in a posture of receptivity that we may receive what you have to give us today, God. Lord, we ask that you would be exalted in your power this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for me, when I look at this woman, there are four words that I believe describe her. Suffering, courage, faith, and restoration. To understand the full amount of restoration and healing that will take place in her life throughout the story, we must first begin with understanding her suffering. First, she was a woman who suffered physically. She had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and the common scholarly understanding of this text was that she suffered with an issue of chronic bleeding, specifically a chronic uterine hemorrhage. Because she had been bleeding for 12 years, we know that she lost a lot of blood. She was very likely anemic, and she was severely weak, severely fatigued. And adding to the daily symptoms of her ailment, we are told that she suffered under the care of many doctors. According to the Talmud, an ancient book of Jewish civil and ceremonial law, we can actually go back and understand the treatments that were advised for a woman like her in this time. Now, the Talmud actually outlines 10 treatments, uh, but I'm only going to discuss three of those with you today. I just want to say that if you laugh during the process of me sharing those treatments, it is completely okay because I cracked up in the process of reading them. Um, but the first treatment was this, that a woman was supposed to find a lot of Persian onions, and then she was supposed to take these Persian onions, submerge them into a pot of wine, and she was supposed to bring that wine to a boil until the wine had been infused with the flavor of the onions. And then once the wine had been infused with the flavor of the onions, she was supposed to take a cup, throw it back, while someone looked at her and shouted, "'Cease your bleeding!' The next one is actually one of my favorites. Um, this woman was instructed to take a cup of wine and put it in her hand and then go sit at a crossroads and wait. Now, I don't know who they hired to do this job that I'm about to describe, but someone had to do it. So as she sat and waited, 
Someone was supposed to come up from behind her and frighten her, shouting, cease your bleeding! And finally, the one that makes me possibly the most thankful for modern medicine, uh, she was supposed to go out and find a white mule. And once she located the white mule, she was supposed to find a pile of the white mule dung. And she was supposed to pluck a grain of barley from the dung of the white mule and eat it. If she could keep this grain of barley in her system for three days, the belief was that she would be healed permanently from her condition. Now, I know that this may be extremely shocking to you, but scripture tells us that none of these treatments actually worked. (laughs) Instead, what it tells us is that um, her condition only worsened. It is important to understand that this ailment that this woman was suffering with was not just really a physical ailment. You know, she didn't hop on a donkey, go to the doctor and get her treatment and then ride back home to a family who loved her and embraced her and then go about normal life until the time she visited the doctor again. That's not what happened. You see, this ailment was an ailment with tremendous religious and social ramifications. Which brings me to our next point. She suffered spiritually. The book of Leviticus is filled with a number of regulations pertaining to worship in all areas of Jewish life. Chapter 15 of Leviticus outlines rules and regulations, purity rules and regulations surrounding bodily fluids. In that scripture, it's explained to us that a woman is unclean as long as she is bleeding. It goes on to say that once the woman has ceased bleeding, that she is unclean for an additional seven days. According to Judaic law, she had been unclean for a very, very long time. But clean, unclean, you may be thinking, what does that really have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with everything. Because you see, within this culture, her unclean state was likened to spiritual death. And the common belief was that no one who was living in a place of spiritual death could approach a holy God of life. Unclean, spiritually dead, and therefore unfit to approach the God of life, this woman was banned from all temple activities. There was no option of worship for her. There were no options of feasts for her. For 12 years, she had no connection to God's story of redemption. As a result, her identity as a member of God's chosen people was not remembered, retold, or affirmed as it was for all those who were deemed clean in the nation of Israel through temple services. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. There is a term within Judaism which refers to a woman who is experiencing uterine bleeding. The word is nidah. Quite literally, it is translated, one who is excluded or expelled. She was not only pushed out of the presence of other worshipers in the time of temple activities... 
See, there was no separation between religious life and social life in first century Judaism. The exclusion of a nidah with her type of perpetual impurity was an extensional exclusion from every single part of community. As a result, she suffered socially. From a young age, girls were taught to strictly adhere to the regulations pertaining to nidah. Because anyone who touched a nidah or came in contact with anything that she had touched would then become ritually unclean. The woman's unclean state was seen as a contagion, having the power to separate one from God and from community. So was the severity of the issue of chronic bleeding that a husband could even divorce his wife if she suffered from a chronic uterine hemorrhage. You see, families and friends disowned women like her. I want to take a moment here because I think it's exceedingly important that we acknowledge the fact that we go to scripture through some Western individualistic eyes and we take off those lenses and we understand that this woman was living in a collectivist culture. In a collectivist culture, people are not separate units, but they're a part of a group. A person's identity in a collectivist society is based on the roles and the experiences that they have within the group. She was not an individual in our Western understanding of the term. See, there was no be all you can be in this culture. Her relationship to others defined her. Her relationship to others determined her identity. Her relationship to others solidified her destiny. And she was unclean, spiritually dead, a contagion. Everyone in the community likely knew who she was but they only knew who she was because they wanted to make sure they had absolutely nothing to do with her. And yet, this unholy walking definition of spiritual death, after hearing of the miracles of Christ, decides something needs to change. Pressing against all cultural, religious, and social boundaries, she enters a crowd pursuing a chance at healing. She was a woman of courage. Dr. Robin Gallagher Branch, a biblical scholar out of South Africa, summarizes our woman's risks well when she explains, legally her touch makes anyone, Jesus and those in the crowd bumping into her, unclean. Weighing the shame of being recognized by angry people, aware of the possibility of public reprimand, knowing that people pick up stones and drive away the unclean. Heedless of the harm and inconvenience she may cause crowd members and Jesus, she nonetheless approaches him. But you see, her risks don't end there. 
According to Judaic law, those who intentionally violated the purity codes pertaining to Nidah were subject to karet, a punishment at the hands of God. Literally translated karet means extirpation, to root out, to destroy. While the specifics of how karet played out are unclear, what is clear is that it is God's harsh, destructive punishment that guaranteed an early death. Some believe that it was also the absolute negation of the spiritual pleasures awaiting the souls of the righteous in the world to come. The perception of violating Nadab purity codes was so severe that the sin that this woman was committing by intentionally being in a crowd and touching others is listed alongside sins like idolatry and incest and adultery as sins that are punishable by karet. And yet she still believed that the risk was worth it. She was a woman of faith. True faith requires risk. And this woman had been told that God rejected her. And yet based on what she heard about Jesus and the miracles she's performing, she believes that maybe, just maybe, something is different. Understanding the full scale of the risk she is taking, she really has nothing else to go on but faith. She approaches Jesus from behind, careful to go unnoticed, and then reaches out and touches his clothes. And then something pretty mind-blowing happens. Twelve years of physical suffering, twelve years of physical anguish, twelve years of bleeding stops immediately. But you see, God wasn't done with her yet. Because then Jesus becomes an active participant in this story. And it's through this interaction with Jesus that she becomes a woman restored. Knowing that power had gone out from him, Jesus persists in looking for the one who touched him. Knowing that she can no longer hide, this woman comes forward and tells the story. To be clear, this woman comes forward and essentially testifies that she has been violating all purity codes pertaining to Nida. And Jesus responds to her, not with condemnation, not with shame, but with love and care, he blesses her in his parting words of restoration. He says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. First, he calls her daughter, a respectful, affectionate term of endearment. In this one word, daughter, he restores her as a child in the family of God. He restores her to community in both religious and social spheres. Second, he explains to her, your faith has healed you. Healed in this text actually means saved. He affirms that her belief in him as the basis for her healing, not purity rituals or works, but grace. 
is the basis for her healing. He restores her to a right understanding of God. Third, he tells her to go in peace. An intentional departing word of blessing that was typically given by a priest. It's important to understand that this blessing referred to a deep spiritual peace. So he basically tells her, go in peace knowing that you have been restored to God. And lastly, he alleviates any worry she might be feeling, any concern that maybe these ailments are going to come back. And he affirms and confirms that she has been restored fully when he tells her to go and be freed from your suffering. What strikes me about this miracle is that this is a woman who was told that she wasn't good enough for God. That God rejected her. And on the basis of this perceived rejection, she was also rejected by community. According to Judaic law, the only chance that she had at restoration is if she could pull herself together, find a doctor, get healed, and then after being healed, go through a series of cleansing rituals, and then maybe, just maybe, she would be good enough for God. But she dares to believe for a moment that with Jesus, maybe something's different. And in response to one act of faith and in 15 words, Jesus breaks off physical, spiritual, and social boundaries. In an act of grace and mercy, he sets her free from her suffering and restores her fully in every single sphere of her life. You see, we all have our messes. We all have those areas of our lives that we struggle with that maybe we feel are untouchable to God. Those ailments of our soul that keep God at a distance. Maybe for you it's some secret that you have that you've told no one about. You wake up every morning and the bondage from that secret, you just feel the weight of it every single day, but you just don't know what to do with it. Maybe you struggle with rage, I don't know. You don't know what's at the core of it. You don't know what's triggering with it. And you don't believe that God can touch it, that it can change. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition where you were taught that every time you messed up, you weren't good enough for God. I don't know. But what I do know is that our God is a God of freedom and restoration. And that freedom comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the amazing thing. In our brokenness and in our mess, we reach out to God and he runs to us. You see, no sin is too deep, no secret too ugly, no brokenness too shattered, no sinner too sinful for the loving and restoring grace of God. And what I know today beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God is in the business of bringing freedom and restoration to his people every single day.
My name is Andrea D'Imperio. I was raised in the church. It was a very conservative upbringing. I would go to summer camp um, through the church, and the main two messages I would come home with are, you're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus as your savior, and now if you are going to be saved, here are the things you need to do in order to please God and show that you actually had a conversion experience. I see where they were coming from in just trying to teach people daily habits, but what spoke to me on a more subconscious level, the second that I screw up, it will be proof that I actually never accepted Jesus into my life. I graduated from college and um, while I was trying to figure out what the next step was going to be, I was waiting tables and met a guy there and I wound up pregnant and I freaked out. Um, I started crying. All I could think about was what my family would think of me and what my church would think of me. I went to the clinic with my boyfriend. I couldn't see a life with a baby right now. I mean, I was terrified, and that's all that consumed me. And I wanted to go back to three weeks ago when I wasn't pregnant. The doctor eventually came out and coldly just handed me a pill and said, take this. I took the pill. I ran straight through the waiting room to the elevator without saying a word to my boyfriend. It was the most excruciating, roughly I think it was six hours of my life. I think it was the next morning. I sat down with my journal and I just made a really brief entry, just apologizing to the baby for what I had done and apologizing to God for what I had done. And that pretty much closed the book for me, so I thought, on that chapter of my life. As the years went on, I had lost emotional connection with God or my faith. I had no idea who I was anymore. Ended up getting married, um, and a couple years after that, we found out we were expecting with our first child, and I had a lot of issues with that. I was very ashamed, again, I couldn't see past where the last pregnancy was. It was a very, very long and difficult labor, and then I ended up with a severe postpartum depression afterwards. I just couldn't see how I deserved to be in the situation I was in with a beautiful child and a wonderful husband. I would look at my son and think to myself, you're really not my first baby. And it made me sad for him because I felt like I cheated him. But it was also a constant daily reminder that I have another baby. Very quickly after we had him, we actually got pregnant again and I had my first daughter, which only made it worse because I realized for the first time when she was born what joy comes with having children. She was just so beautiful. And I kept looking at her thinking, this is what I gave up. So I got to a place of such intense self-hatred 
No matter how hard I tried, during that period I had gone to different churches, I had tried to reconnect, and yet in my head I still thought he forgave me. But then I thought, well, that's too easy. So I had to hate myself. We were going to be moving, and my sister had told me about a church that was close to where we were going to be moving. So I went to Parkview. I sat in the back row, and um, while I was waiting for the service to start, I started reading through the bulletin and saw on the back the list of recovery groups, one of them being Restore, a group for post-abortion recovery. I had never been at a lower point in my whole life than I was at that very moment. And I just knew that this was God reaching out to me and finally saying, we can work through this. The burden was so heavy and it was such a dark place. So I emailed the email and a very kind person emailed me back asking me to come in for a consultation and she just let me tell my story. And that was really the first time I had ever told anybody. So she encouraged me to get involved in a Bible study they have. So I went into the first Restore group. The leader shared their stories with us to help make us feel comfortable. But I remember saying, I know God forgives me, but I will never, ever, ever forgive myself, ever. But I went back every week and I did my um, Bible study at home and I just prayed for something to come out of this. I mean, even a little bit of relief would be welcome at this point. Every time I would talk about how horrible of a person I was and how much I hated myself, my leaders would say, God forgives you. And I would just cry and say, I know he forgives me, but I don't deserve that. I continued going to Parkview and we happened to be in a series on 1 John and Pastor Ray talked a lot about works and it's not Jesus plus works, it's just Jesus. I just realized that what was holding me back was this works mentality. And when I finally realized that and went into group one week and they said one more time to me, God forgives you. And I thought, I don't deserve it. I also thought, but I will take it. And I need it. And I went to church the next week and heard Ray say it again. And all of a sudden I just felt all this mercy and love and comfort wash right over me and I just cried and cried and cried. Thank you. And I felt free and I had never felt that before. Never, ever in my whole life had I felt that before. And it was awesome and it was energizing. I actually had joy and I cried about how free I am and how grateful I was to have that huge burden just lifted off my shoulder because I didn't have to pay for what I did. Jesus already did that. Jesus came to set the prisoners free. 
And scripture tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. One amazing part of Andrea's story that's not in the video is that not only has God restored her, but this fall at Parkview, she will be leading a restore group and helping other women move toward recovery after abortion. But right now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done. We thank you that you are a God who brings freedom into our lives. And God, I pray right now for every single person in this room, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of greater freedom and wholeness and healing and restoration in you. And God, just as you gave that woman an amazing blessing in departing, may we be blessed this day also remembering that you speak to us those same exact words, sons and daughters go in peace. Amen.